You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part eight, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Merry Christmas and happy holidays from Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. For several years now, I've made it part of this show's tradition to include ghost stories for Christmas after the fashion of the BBC TV series from the 1970s, which in turn was inspired by and often based on the work of M.R. James. This year, I had several stories I was considering. First, I was thinking about James's classic, The Mezzotent. I love that creepy story, but then I found that Mark Gatiss and the BBC are presenting a dramatic version of it tomorrow night, so I didn't want to be redundant. Next, I strongly considered The Voice in the Night, a super creepy nautical tale with fungal features, but not exactly a ghost story. And because of some of the conversation in our next regular episode, which will be out in just a few days, I also considered the E.F. Benson Creeper and No Bird Sings. But again, that's not exactly a ghost story, although I do love this exciting mix of the supernatural and shotguns. It feels very tabletop RPG. But there was one more story that really has quite haunted me for decades. I could only remember the conclusion, as no doubt you will too, but without the title or the author, it had eluded me. So I set about to find it using every single detail I could remember. And I succeeded. I did find it. But then I couldn't find it in print or an ebook. I almost gave up, but then I realized there was one more angle. If I couldn't find the story itself, perhaps I could find a place 
where it had been anthologized and then find the collection. And after digging, again, success. And I must have rolled a natural 20 because not only did I find it digitized within an anthology, but the anthology I found was most assuredly the one I read it from as a child. And I was delighted to find that the author was none other than Laura Dunsany, whose work I'd been recommended by such people as H.P. Lovecraft and Neil Gaiman. This story is from the 1962 anthology Alfred Hitchcock's Ghostly Gallery. I don't know how often I check this book out from the library, but seeing it digitized on the Internet Archive was a real trip down memory lane, and I look forward to further nostalgic rides betwixt its pages. But for now, let's gather by the fire and turn the lights down low and tell a ghost story for Christmas. In a Dim Room by Lord Dunzani. It is some while now since I have recorded any unusual experience that has come the way of my friend Jorkins. The fact is that I incurred a certain amount of odium in one house by bringing him into it. It was not my fault, nor do I think it was his. What happened was that a certain friend of mine said that his children liked thrilling tales, and I told them a few tales of lions and tigers which had quite failed to thrill them. It suddenly occurred to me that there's something a little unusual in some of Jorkin's experience amongst Asian or African carnivora, so that any tale of his might be likely to succeed where those that I told had failed. So I said to my friend's three children that I knew an old hunter of big game whose experiences were more out of the way than mine, and asked my friend if I might one day bring him to tea. I had no idea there would be anything frightening about one of Jorkin's tales, nor did I think that the three children, ranging between ten and twelve years old, would be easily frightened. The permission to bring Jorkin's was readily given, and the children unfortunately asked him for a thrilling tale in those actual words, and Jorkin's began at once, as soon as they asked him. Now it is all blamed on me. I can only say that they asked for it, and they got it. It should be borne in mind that they had never seen Jorkins before, and had only his own word for what kind of man he was. And then children can be very credulous. Well, here is the story which he told almost as soon as he was seated in a comfortable chair with the children standing before him, two boys of ten and eleven, and a girl of twelve. It was all about a tiger but I was counting on his telling a straight story, such as I have so often heard him tell to grown-ups, and did not expect him to vary his style to suit his audience, if suit can be the proper word for the alarming effect he created. "'The tiger,' said Jorkins, "'had spotted me and was following me quite leisurely, as though it did not want to run in the hot weather, and knew perfectly well that I couldn't. My story may serve as a convenient warning to you when you grow up never to go near an Indian jungle unarmed and never to think as I did that just for once on that particular morning and for only a short walk, it wouldn't matter. It mattered more than I think you can possibly guess. The tiger was there and he was coming slowly after me and I was walking away and the tiger was walking a little faster than I was. Well, 
Of course, I realized that, if he was only doing five yards and a hundred faster, I had no chance of escaping by walking, and I knew that running would only make it worse. "'Why?' asked the children. "'Why?' said Jorkins. "'Because if I started a new game, the tiger would play it too. "'At walking, he was only gaining five yards in a hundred, "'but at running, he would have gained fifty. "'That's why I preferred walking. "'But it wasn't any better, really, "'because it would end the same way. "'Unfortunately, it wasn't actually in the jungle, "'but on some rocky land outside it, "'and there was no chance of a tree "'because I was walking away from the jungle.' Why? asked another child. Because the tiger was between me and it, said Jorkins. The tigers go outside the jungle at night and go back in the very early morning when the peacocks are waking and screaming. All this was in the early morning, but the sun was well up and I thought that the tigers would have all been back long ago, so I went for that walk unarmed, and of course I was quite mistaken. "'Why were you taking the walk?' asked the girl. "'You should never ask anyone,' said Jorkins, "'why he did anything that leads to disaster, "'because all such things are done for the same reason, "'which one does not like to admit. "'But there it is. "'They are all for the same reason, pure foolishness.' "'Did it lead to disaster?' asked she. "'You shall hear,' said Jorkins.' "'Well, I think I told you I was on rocky land. "'It was hilly, too, and the tiger was getting nearer. "'And then I saw a cave in the rocks near the top of a little hill. "'Of course, to go in there would cut off my retreat. "'But my retreat was doing me no good, and there was nowhere better to go. "'It seemed to me that the small cave might get smaller "'till there was no more room for the tiger, "'or it might get larger and have ramifications "'amongst which I might dodge him. "'There were just two small hopes and nowhere else to go, "'so I stooped and went into the cave, "'and the tiger came in too. "'He was still some way behind me, "'and I saw the light go out as he entered, "'for he just about filled the entrance. "'The cave did get smaller, "'and soon I was on all fours.' Still, the tiger did not hurry. If it got smaller still, I might still conceivably squeeze on where the tiger could not. And it did get a little smaller. But not small enough. We went on over the smooth gray stone, and it got darker as we went, till I could no longer see the color of the floor, and the tiger seemed to absorb the whole of the daylight." A faint hope came to me from a story of a skeleton of a mouse which had been found in a wall of a cathedral with the skeleton of a cat behind it. He had got where the cat could not follow, but it didn't do him much good. I hoped that if I ever found such refuge, the tiger would have more sense than the cat. But still, the cave ran on without getting as small as all that. Still, the tiger wasn't hurrying. And that seemed to me to make the situation even more desperate. It seemed to show that the tiger was so sure. Of course, I could smell him behind me, for he was still gaining. But the smell seemed almost too strong for a tiger nearly thirty yards behind. And the awful thought came to me that this cave, which I hoped might shelter me, 
was the tiger's own lair. That is very much what it seemed to me. Then came the hope, after going some distance, that the cave might soon come out through the little hill. Though I don't know what good that would have done me, still, absurd though it may seem, logically, it seemed better to me to lose five yards in a hundred when walking in the open, if ever I could get there again, than what I was losing by going on all fours in a race with an animal to whom that sort of walking is natural. And then... The uncertainties of the other side of the hill seemed better than those around me, as they often do in such cases, and I thought I might find a tree, but there was no draft in my face, and there was only the smell of the tiger in the darkness, and I realized I should never come to the open air. I glanced at the children's faces to see if Jorkins was holding their attention any better than I had done. They were certainly listening intently, though I could not see that they were showing much more interest than they had shown in my poor story. The idea came to me, which may have been quite unjust, that the sympathies of the girl, so far as she felt any, were on the side of the tiger. But that, of course, may only have been my fancy. I should perhaps say that it was in the autumn, and no lights had yet been turned on, and the room was growing dim. I repeat that it was no fault of mine. I had no idea what was coming." The tiger was gaining rapidly, Jorkins continued, and the perfect smoothness of the limestone floor had made it quite clear by now that it must have for long been polished by soft feet, the large feet of a heavy animal. There was no roughness left on any edge upon which I put my hand, and then the smooth floor came to a sheer smooth rock without crevice or crack in it. I turned round in the dark and smelt rather than saw the tiger. "'What happened then?' asked one of the boys. "'He ate me,' said Jorkins. "'It is a ghost that is speaking to you.' And all the fuss that happened in that dim room was blamed entirely on me. been a Monster House presentation.